Hello, I'm Ken Bruce. I appeared as a guest on My Time Capsule, and after that I had to give up a job I'd had for 46 years. <sighs> anyway, they want me to tell you that they've started a thing called Acast Plus, where for a small monthly fee you can get the podcast ad-free. For me, I think the ad's are the best thing in it. That Fenton Stevens, he does drone on a bit. Anyway, whatever you like, do something and have a go at it. ACAS Plus, my time capsule. Thanks, Ken. Charming. Anyway, to get my time capsule ad-free and for a bonus my time capsule, the debrief episode every week, subscribe to ACAS Plus. Details in the description of this episode. Thanks. Bloody Ken Bruce, what a cheek. Normally, being a little extra might be a bit much, but not when it comes to healthcare. That's why United Healthcare's Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, supplement your primary plan so you manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Quality sleep is essential for boosting energy, recovery, and well-being. So, take your sleep to the next level with Sleep Number. With a Sleep Number smart bed, you can individualize your comfort level and enjoy a better sleep night after night. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599, a saving of $300, only for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Hello, and welcome to My Time Capsule. I'm Mike Fenton-Stevens, and this is the podcast where I ask various guests to tell me the five things from their life that they treasure so much they would like to preserve them in a time capsule. Well, in fact, they pick four things like that, and one thing that they rather regret, something they'd like to bury in the ground and never have to think about again. My guest in this episode is the stand-up comedian, actor, writer and presenter, Hal Cruttenden. Hal is one of the top touring stand-up comedians in the country. He's made several appearances on Live at the Apollo, Have I Got News For You, The Royal Variety Performance, Would I Lie To You, The One Show, The Great British Bake Off, An Extra Slice and The Apprentice, You're Fired. Richard Osman's House of Games, Bot the Week, Guessable, Celebrity Mastermind, Celebrity Chase, The Right Stuff, Edinburgh Comedy Festival Live and Celebrity Tipping Point. And as an actor, he's appeared in Shackleton, EastEnders, Touching Evil, Bramwell, Mrs. Dalloway, Brexit, Making News, and Orwell, A Celebration. Hal has toured extensively in the UK and Ireland over the last eight years, and he's also taken shows to Montreal, Melbourne, and New Zealand. Lucky chap. He wrote and starred in his own sitcom, Hal, on Radio 4. And he presents a comedy rugby podcast with Dan Skinner called Rugby Jubbly. So let's discover what Hal Cruttenden would like to gently place in a time capsule. Well, apart from the one thing he hates, obviously. Have fun. I feel uh, I've got to do some stand-up on this, actually. I feel like the situation my kids face is the reverse of what I face at their age. In terms of when I was a kid, it was full of older people, grandparents telling me what I owed them. 
And, you know, they had made this massive sacrifice, the wartime generation and what they've been through and the things you kids have got these days and all these things you've got. And I feel the reverse now. I feel like I, I feel huge guilt about what my children face. But I do think there's a time where you go, the next generation, it just seems to be getting tougher and tougher. And that that gap between being comfortable and very uncomfortable or the, or the insecurity of life. I, I'm a, It's one of the things being... Um, you know, when I was deciding to be an actor, and my sister was an, is an actor, of going, oh, it's such an insecure job. So many jobs are insecure now. Everything is now, I think, yeah. Exactly. The idea is that you change your job over and over again. I think I've nearly worked with your sister on a number of cases. Oh, really? Yeah, I mean, I've been in not going out, but she wasn't oh, in that episode. Oh, right. uh, In fact, I've been in it twice, you know, so twice I've missed her. And she oh. was in the beginning of Benidorm, and, and I, I started Series 5. So, Oh, uh, she was first three, wasn't she, or something? Yeah, that's right. She gets all the fabulous sitcom parts, and I've <laughs> never had a part in a sitcom and would die for it. I would just be like... <laughs> And it's like, I can't be jealous. I can't do the same job. She's not taking work away from me. In fact, no. I, I had a radio sitcom on Radio 4. And in the second series, I put her in as my sister. And she was superb. I just went, Ugh. she stole the show. And I went, I'm not going to be jealous. She's, <laughs> she, was just, she was just great. She's so good. She is really good. Yeah. Her performances in comedy are mm. the same and as good as her performances in straight stuff. Yeah. She doesn't perform it differently. That is such a strength. So many people feel that you have to do comedy in a different way. The real skill is, I think, to do it the same, but know when it's funny. Yeah, yeah. Oh, well, how we should move on to the idea of this podcast, which is that we talk, <laughs> we talk about five things from your life that you want to put into a time capsule. That seems like endless possibilities, doesn't it? It does. This is so hard. And when you listen to it, go, oh, I know what I do. This, 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 and this. And you go, no, oh, no, what about that? What about that? My first one... Mm-hmm is something that's potentially very sad, but actually is about a lovely thing out of a very sad thing. The first school I went to uh, in West London, I'm not going to name it because I think it's now lovely as a school, but in 1975, I think the school from the age of five to eight was one of the nastiest experiences of my life. And Uh. And I think it was only when my own kids went to school that I went... Oh my God, it can be lovely. (laughs) I went to this pre-prep school in West London that just seemed to hate kids. There were so many teachers there. Whenever I hear stories about people who went to boarding schools, now admittedly they went a bit older, but I know people who went at seven and stuff. Now I was going home every evening, but some of the most unkind experiences of my life from, from there was a teacher there when I was five and six that just hated little boys. And they were turning us into little men. We all had our uniforms. We were doing Latin at six and seven. There was just a cruelty to it. And it, I do, I don't know. I want to say there are a, a few people I've met since then who were very good. Well, a very good friend of mine at the time who I hadn't seen for years. I met recently and he went, oh, is it that bad? And I went, oh, maybe it's me. <laughs> maybe I'm overreacting. But but I remember and there was one teacher there that really would have been prosecuted now. I'll give you an example. This sounds incredibly harsh. OK, mm. I was five. I was in her class and um, <laughs> this is where I mustn't cry. <laughs> I was so scared Get this one out of the way first. I was so scared. I needed the loo and I was so scared I didn't put my hand up and I wet myself. And I was not a kid that wet myself. And she made the rest of the class laugh at me. Oh, Lord. And you look back and go, oh, my word. That was, it it was astonishing abuse. There was, I mean, psychological abuse. There was a boy there and I can't believe this happened, but I know it did. He was playing football and he got injured and she, she wouldn't let him stop playing. Uh. And he never stopped limping. 
no. I mean, it, it sounds cartoon-like. It sounds ridiculous. But anyway, in this school, it wasn't it, this one teacher. I think I saw her once when I was fifteen in a supermarket, and I was still terrified. I still nearly wet myself. No, she was she was just hated kids, mm. and the atmosphere at that school. And, and my mum, my mum, my poor mum, because I used to every Sunday night go, I don't want to go back, I don't want to go back. And my mum would go, my mum thought, oh, it's quite good if he gets through this. She was of that sort of attitude. And she, yeah. you know, she was She was kept thinking, do I take him out? Do I put him back in? Um, so many teachers were just horrible. You just felt like no one liked you. Mm. But out of that, there was one man. And I do, I, it'd be lovely if his relatives heard this. I don't know anything about him. He will be long dead now. A lovely man called Mr. Scammell. Mm. And he just comes to mind to me recently because I realised that he was the one nice man in this school. He was always sweet. He was always nice to you. He didn't need to shout at us to control us. We were just nice. We were just kids. Yeah, of course. I, I remember Virginia Wade winning Wimbledon and him running into every classroom going, boys, I've got to tell you, Virginia Wade's won Wimbledon. <laughs> and, um, and he just liked kids. He was just a nice, sweet man. And there was a school trip when I was about eight and just before I left... I must have been seven or eight. We went on a week-long trip to Dieppe. And wow. I was incredibly young, but there were three of us who were like eight. Yeah. And my mum went, well, he wants to go. And I wanted to go. I was obviously, you know, I stayed there for three years. I wasn't constantly traumatised. It was the worst at the beginning when that mm. certain teacher I won't name. Um, but, you know, I was away from that. And we were like the babies of this group because it was pre-prep, five to eight, and then there were boys that stayed there till they were 13. Yeah. So it was the whole school, whoever wanted to go, went on this week-long trip to Dieppe where we stayed in, in a house where we boarded in a French school and we just ran around Dieppe and did stuff. And it was just... <laughs> and Mr Scammell's one of the teachers on this trip. I think it was because he was taking it. I went, well, I'll go if Mr Scammell's taking it. Yeah. And I look back on that. I was the youngest person on the trip. And when I look back, I remember coming, and for years, I didn't realise this, and I used to go, I did, that was so great, that trip, and I won everything. <laughs> I won every competition. I won this and that and that. And he must have said to other boys, you know, a bit worried about the kids, boy. You know, he got the sort of 11, 12, 13-year-olds go, just be nice, you know, oh, and I brilliant. won everything. How lovely. He was just a lovely man, and I just thought there was no reason in that atmosphere of that school. I've never had a school experience like it since, and it changed the way I dealt with teachers. Mm. I, it made me afraid of teachers. Drama school, I was less likely to be friendly with teachers because I think it set that tone in my life of just yes. going, these people can humiliate you. Uh, they'll turn on you. Yeah. Isn't it strange how some people, their attitude to particularly very young children is that mm. if they're not doing exactly what they wanted them to do, the child is deliberately being naughty rather than just being a child. Yes. Yes. Exactly. That's what struck me, I think, when my own kids went to school. And you suddenly went, how nice. Mm. These teachers, are, they don't get the hassle for this. They don't. And if they'd ever go, oh, she told me off a little bit today. I went, well, how did she tell you off? She said, well, you shouldn't do that. And I was going, that's not that bad. <laughs> <laughs> I completely understand this because my history is that my son, mm. who is the producer of this podcast, oh, right. he became a school refuser when he went up to secondary school. He just couldn't cope with it. And he dropped out of school. God. And I couldn't understand it. I just thought, oh, no, you've got to go to school. And then I started to reanalyze my own school time, yeah. my own experience of it, and remembered that to a large extent it was, it was awful. <laughs> it was really awful. It was frightening. It was dangerous. Yeah. Teachers were awful to you. And was it was that all boys school? Was that yeah. sort of? It's also it's the minor. It's sort of the minor public school 
attitude. Mm. I said, well, my one was, I went on to a, <laughs> I extraordinarily went on to a school that's well known, but then became very, someone said to me the day you went there, because there's a massive paedophile scandal at my other, <laughs> but I never encountered that. So uh, yeah, it was a bit of frying pan fire, but and it's ridiculous that as kids we were doing Latin at six and seven and they were pushing and pushing and pushing us ahead. Um, being taught by men who'd been through a war. Absolutely, yes. I remember these majors who taught us. And there were certain men who could just scout at you who were terrifying men. And you thought, mm. you're just doing that to pass time. You were sort of retired and you don't really like these boys. And They were furious, most of them, that that's mm. where they'd ended up. And also, I should imagine, large numbers of them were probably, you know, mentally scarred by having been through a war. Yeah. And it made them dangerous people, really, to be around, particularly if they had power over you. Exactly. It was a strange time. Some teachers were wonderful as a result of it, came out of it and realised that actually life was to be lived. Well, exactly. Well, maybe that was Mr Scammell, because Mr Scammell was the age of having gone through a war and things like that. And Mm. he was... It was just a... I I just love people who are in those environments and are kind when it, you don't have to be. There's no one telling you they just are kind people when they're in an environment of cruelty. I think often that cruelty and that uh, being over-disciplined or insisting on everybody never breaking the rules at all comes out of fear. They're yeah. afraid that they can't control the mass, as it were, so they just end up shouting at children all day long. <laughs> nobody learns anything. Everybody just they're terrified. When I, I say certain things to, to to my kids nowadays, like I saw a games teacher hit boys with a cricket bat oh hard. So and you look back, you look back at that and go, "Oh my word!" Yeah. And at the time, it takes years, doesn't it? It's just go. How does that? <laughs> it really does. The problem with it is, I think, is that you find in your own life that what it does is it gives you an an unthinking acceptance of violence. I think yeah. it took me a long time to discard violence from my life, to realise how much I hated it. Yeah. As a boy, you know, I was famous for fighting. Oh, really? Oh, God, I got in trouble all the time. This part of me hears that and goes, I'd love to have been famous for fighting. <laughs> anyway, sorry, but carry on, yeah. No, no, yeah. I mean, it was, it was awful. I always got beaten up. But my oh. reaction to people uh, seemingly insulting me, oh. I was absolutely a bullshit little kid, always getting into fights. But that's so interesting as well. There's also a way in which we grow up as men so often. We're pretending we're not afraid of violence. Mm. We spend so much time going, because because you look at all these examples, I certainly did, and I've always been afraid of violence. But it took me, again, I must have been in my early 30s, I was with a comedian. I was talking to a comic who'd got into a situation where he was, I think he was with a woman and her ex attacked him. He was literally in bed with this woman. They'd broken up and he woke up with a guy on top of him punching him in the face. And he said, do you know what bothers me is that whenever I tell people that, they say, do you need, you know, I can sort it out. I know someone. We can do him. And all this. He went, he went, no, I hate violence. I'm scared of violence. Violence is horrible. I don't. And I went, I've never heard a man actually say that so honestly in that situation, because you are meant to respond by going, I'll take him down and all, yeah. you know, but actually the truth is loads of us find violence terrifying. It's like, you know, you watch... Watch football fans attack each other, and there's so much dancing around. But there's people at the fringes of those fights going, oh, yeah, I might get involved. And they they feel as men, they're meant to not show that they're frightened when everybody's frightened. You know, it's it's extraordinary. I don't know. Yes, it is extraordinary. And the sooner that we all admitted it, the sooner we'd stop doing it. I mean, there's no need for it at all. Mm. Even to the extent of wars, you know, there must be ways around these things. Exactly. 
Well, but we should take you and Mr. <laughs> Scammell in Dieppe, you running around buying flick knives. I know. <laughs> <laughs> That's so funny that that was your memory as well. Now you say that. I went, yes, we did buy knives. Of course we did. <laughs> Of course and also suddenly, I mean, I didn't do that this time. I did this later on. But I remember 10-year-olds, some boys getting hold of cigarettes. For some yeah. reason, France was this place of just of freedom, wasn't it? Yeah. France was the place where you could buy, we've got some cigarettes and we're 10. And I thinking, oh, my word. My French teacher, we went to France with him and he was drunk from the moment we got <laughs> on the boat at about seven o'clock in the morning. <sighs> he just sat there at the bar with a large red wine, and he was drunk for the entire trip, and he was the most gorgeous and pleasant man as a result of it. Oh, lovely. There was something very decadent about France. Love it. Yes. We all look forward to going back. <laughs> right, Hal, so that's your first item. So let's move on to item number two. Uh, well, my second item, I suppose it is an actual item, but it's a whole thing. Yeah. Because I've, I've got all these programmes out of my loo, actually, because I wanted to remind myself of them, because my office is slightly distant from my house. I have a weird, I have a weird thing here. Um, yeah. So I brought them over. But I have rugby programmes from my first game I went to, 1975, England, Scotland. Wow. And I've got all these signatures and stuff. And I just look through them. They're in our downstairs loo. And <laughs> I just love it. I look, weirdly... One of my teachers who taught me O-level maths, Dave Rollett there, he's uh, playing flanker for England in the first game I ever saw. Good Lord. And then 10 years later... Do you think actually, that's why you went? I didn't know. He wasn't my teacher at the time. He, he, uh, he wasn't my teacher for years later. I just ran in, you know, he was just at school. I mean, God, he was a great teacher. You know those teachers who, you know, he was a hard, hard man, but he never showed it because he didn't need to because all these boys were like, Total respect, Mr. Rollett, you know. <laughs> and we were the bottom stream for maths, and he got us all great results because we just went, yes, we will totally do what you say because there's no there's no answering back to you, sir. Um, but basically, it's rugby I'm putting in. Ironically, I was dreadful at playing rugby. Not just dreadful, I was also injured very, very young. Um, I started having a problem with my knees when I was 12, and I was retired by 16. <laughs> I had three oh, knee no. operations and... Um, and also, having said that, it's a lovely excuse to have a long-term injury mm. because I was no way that good. I just wasn't that good. <laughs> I, I, had, I had odd seasons. I look back and go, I can tell you. I remember saying to my wife, going, at 13, I had a great season. Next season, rubbish again. <laughs> 11, not good. 10, I was great. I used to sort of go on and off and just, no, I was a good tackler one season, bit of a rubbish tackler the next. It was like my, my bravery came and went. On. <laughs> Maybe it was growth spurts. Yes. You were bigger one year, and then the next year everybody caught up. Oh, that's a good point. Never thought about that. I was never massive. Well, I'd said it to you, I was a big scrum half because I was normal-sized, mm. and I usually played scrum half. Lynchpin, lynchpin. Yeah. Oh, it's the most important position on the field. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I, I have one great moment. I was training because I used to play at London Welsh at the club. Wow. Because um, I grew up in West London. And so I used to play for, you know, mini rugby and juniors rugby a little bit until, you know, I was, I, I was not great. Um, and John Dawes, you know, the captain of the British Lions, 1971 against New Zealand and the great Welsh player. And he was wandering around and saw me playing and came up to my dad and said, that's the best scrum half pass I've ever seen on a kid that age. And I was like, <laughs> he, he probably then followed that with, but he's rubbish at everything else. <laughs> His knees are going to go. His knees are going to go. Um, <laughs> But rugby is just 
for me, the real joy of rugby was because I achieved very little as a player. But the joy is, even from being five years old, being taken to my first game, sit at Twickenham to watch England win. An incredibly boring game it must have been because it was 7-6. And then throughout the 80s, my dad got debentures at Twickenham. And it was a thing my dad and I did. It was like, you know, it was the thing that we, you know, I had two older sisters and my mum. And and it was just a thing for me and my dad. And, uh, oh, just to sit there through the 80s when England were dreadful for most of it. They won the Grand Slam in 1980, which was, I was there for, um, uh, yeah, you didn't have debentures then. I missed the Wales game, still bothers me. Anyway, I still (laughs) know more about the 80s England side than I do about about modern rugby. Um, Do you remember Erica Rowe streaking? Yes, I do. The famous Erica Rowe. Classic moment from my dad. So that's, I think, England, Australia, it's half time. She comes on with her top off. I must have been (laughs) about 11 or 12 Everybody's standing up at half-time. She's running around. My dad loudly says, can you sit down, please? You're blocking my son's view. <laughs> <laughs> um, it's such a thing for me. It's, it, for me, because I'm addicted to rugby again. I've gone through two phases in my life. As a, as a child, I used to go to Twickenham. My dad died very suddenly uh, when he was younger than me, when he was in 1990. So I was only 20 um, and feel terrible because I missed the last two games I would have gone to, which would have been... So um, you, you didn't go to the last two games with him? I didn't go to the last two games that he went to. Uh, so so that's very sad. But um, mm. And I didn't go to Twickenham. I didn't go to live rugby for 16 years, I think. Oh, no, 15 years. I moved to North London, went to see Saracens 2005. I went back to Twickenham, I think. Sorry, I'm a bit weird on years, Mike. <laughs> that's I went right. to Twickenham 2006. <laughs> mm. And I hadn't been since I'd been with my dad. And obviously it was very transformed and rebuilt. Yeah. I started to go to Saracens a lot because I'd grown up in West London, moved to North London. And now I've got so involved at Saracens. I'm a season ticket holder there. I do an online show for them before matches. Because, you know, we've been forced down to the championship because of the salary cap breach. You know, the, Yes. yes um, so every, everybody hates us and we don't care. <laughs> um, and... Uh, and I do an online show called The Huddle, which goes online before online matches. I'm doing these little video reports every week as well for BT Sport on rugby. Mm. And I just, I watch about six rugby matches every weekend. I will go, I see the premiership, see that, all these go. And it's become my midlife crisis again, rugby. (laughs) It is a connection to my dad, maybe. You could say psychologically it's that. I used to, I remember when my dad died, and I was obviously, I I was a student, but all my dreams were being seven years old, walking through Twickenham, holding his hand, you know. So, How lovely. Yeah, it's just, I think it's, it's, it's not just, though, about that relationship. It must be, it's that moment, it's that thing of, for me, rugby is so exciting. And maybe it just relights something in my brain. That moment when someone scored at Twickenham, I still remember it. And everybody's standing up and I couldn't see a thing because I was tiny. <laughs> and I just went, oh, it's just so exciting. And also England scoring was just always amazing because we were so bad. Um, <laughs> it's true. So you can understand when you come to the point where we win the World Cup. Yes. Uh, the reaction of the nation, because mm. people don't remember that before then, we'd gone years and years and years where we didn't, we were terrible. Yeah, it was amazing. And also, I slightly miss us being rubbish as well, because we were more likeable when we were rubbish. Do you know what I mean? Yes, now, I now England have become hated because they are a big fish. I mean, they've had a rubbish Six Nations this year. Mm. Because of professionalism, they're never going to be as bad as they were in the amateur era, because now their money really catches. Do you know what I mean? I remember very early in the morning in Auckland, walking past a hotel me and my friend Philip, and we were both a little bit drunk, and we walked past, mm. standing outside the hotel, I think probably waiting for a taxi, was Bill Beaumont. Oh. And we went, Bill, Bill, we're English, we're English as well. 
and he went, yeah, yeah, I guessed. <laughs> we went, all the best, mate, all the best, and off we went. Oh, do you know how many times I got that man's autograph? I've got England, New Zealand here from 1979, and I've got all these autographs. All the players used to come out, and um, my dad used to organise a queue for Bill Beaumont because there was, you know, people would literally be a queue of boys. And my dad was all sort of pleased that he was chatting to Bill. Mm. Um, but I was there for, like, Clive Woodward's first cap when he came on. He, I think it was Tony Bond against Ireland, broke his leg, and Clive Woodward came on and sealed his place in the England side. And then I, I still have that thing about rugby players. And the embarrassing thing now is that they're half my age. And <laughs> I'll be a bit, I've been a bit drunk and run up to Maro Atoje, great game, Maro, you know. Um, <laughs> and also, I still have that absolute thrill of being, being around people, achieving something that we could never achieve. Yeah. And if I can do a little advert, mm-hmm. women's rugby I've got into this year, that's brilliant. Ah. <laughs> I think it's slightly... Um, feels like there's more space on the field. It's like anything else. It's like probably people discovering women's tennis and going, this is just as entertaining as men's tennis. I don't understand yeah. why we don't get the coverage. In fact, sometimes more entertaining. Exactly. Well, it definitely. I mean, oh, Saracen's women are also very good. They've been mm. champions the last two seasons. Um, <laughs> so you're a bit biased. And, well, yeah, but also because we do this show at Saracen's and a lot of the women have come on the show and I'm ter- I'm I'm just I'm a terrible name dropper. Going, it's Rocky Clark, Rocky Clark, Rochelle, Rochelle Clark uh, is <laughs> the most capped England player of all times, men or women's rugby, really? and she's on the show for the third time this weekend. And I just go, she's my friend. I'm a friend. Oh, I love it. Um, they are extraordinary creatures as well. Now, I mean, they were yeah. obviously in their day, you know, but in a way, it was almost a sort of a. If you look at, you know, Barry John, it was just this yeah. extraordinary natural talent that he'd, he just could run like the wind. Yeah. But now you look at them and the training and the work and the effort that's gone into developing themselves into these amazing athletes. Yeah. And it, it's such a tough game. Yes. You look at it and you think, how can they survive one hit like that oh. without doing it for, you know, 80 minutes? It's incredible. And obviously with rugby, they're trying to make it safer because they've now realised the long-term damage. And that's sort of heartbreak, isn't it? These players did this. The game became so hard. And then these players that have had problems with um, dementia problems, isn't it, from mm. from the concussions and stuff, it sort of breaks your heart. You go, God, they did. They, we were loving that. We were loving those hits. Yes. And, those, and, and so now they're trying to, you know, find a way to make that so much... So much safer. But I yes. still find the sk- – I, I love that combination of the – there's moments of brutality and then moments of just beauty. Well, the handling, the ball handling. Uh, under pressure with someone about to hit you and the little pass. Unbelievable. Mm. I think the handling now is, is extraordinary. They will do things yeah. that you, you can't believe. Exactly. I've met a couple of rugby players when they were in their sort of prime. I had to do some filming with Kenny Logan. Oh, yes. And he's a really lovely man. But I had to, as a part of it, shake his hand and slap him on the arm. I had to do this take about ten times. And by the end of it, my hand hurt. (laughs) Because hitting him on the arm was like hitting a brick wall. Yeah. And also there's now wingers who are 24 stone, well, 21 (laughs) stone. I think Nemani Nandolo, he's the Leicester wing. He's on the wing and he's 21 stone. And you go... As a child, I remember the big boys, but the big boys were in the in the scrum. The idea was mm. not you. You weren't allowed to be fast and massive. That's like a new <laughs> level of hell, isn't it? You just look yes. at them and go, how are people just, you know, it's just terrifying. It's not fair. Do you know what I was thinking about with it as well? Mm. It is a little bit sad being a massive rugby fan. Well, it's my thing. But a, a club rugby fan, I look at us all and there's, a, you know, there's, we've got Saracen Supporters Association, all those things. And I go, maybe we're a bit geeky and weird because the fans, I remember talking to, players who said 
you know, that they miss the fans so much. They can't wait for the fans to be back. And I went, really? Aren't we a bit geeky and weird? And then I thought, no, the biggest comedy fans are a bit geeky Mm. and weird. And I love them. The people that love what you do is so appreciated. I never think that players don't appreciate fans because those are the people that will always be with you. They're the ones that will travel a long way. And with Saracens, the the fans that have stayed and are still season ticket holders, despite what the club's gone through. And actually you go, yeah, you do. Because I love them. I I mean, God, there's there's a guy I met recently who knows so much about comedy. He's seen everybody. And he's the he's just fantastic. And I went, it's people like you that will save our industry when we're, now we're opening up again. It's people like you that just love what we do. He's seen all my tours and he's seen me continually. He sits in the front row of gigs and I went, I come off afterwards and I see him and go, Rich, you you know, you've seen 80% of that set two weeks ago. He went, I still love it. I just love it. I love coming. And I went, I just love people like you. So I do think even though we're a bit geeky and weird rugby fans, they do love us still. You love it, so that's the important exactly. thing. We should take it as a thing, rugby, and we should put it into the time capsule. Rightly so, I say. That's great. So what's um, what's item number three? OK, we're going to take a short break here, but as they say on those American afternoon dramas, patience is a virtue. So relax, and we'll be back after these ads. Hey, everyone. I've been on the go recently. Phoenix, Kansas City, Chicago. If you're like me and have a home but aren't always at home, you have an Airbnb. Hosting your home or a spare room is a very practical side hustle. If you live in a big game town, you can Airbnb your place for fans to stay in. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash post. Want flexibility? Take yoga. Want flexibility with your health insurance? Check out United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget friendly medical, dental, and vision coverage that may be right for you. More at uh1.com. Quality sleep is essential for boosting energy, recovery, and well being. So take your sleep to the next level with Sleep Number. With a Sleep Number smart bed, you can individualize your comfort level and enjoy a better sleep night after night. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599, a saving of $300, only for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Welcome back. Feeling virtuous? Good. In that case, let's find out what else Hal Cruttenden would choose to put in his time capsule. Item number three is a moment. It's just a moment in time that was so perfect and I was so happy. And I look back on this and go... I just don't think I can match that moment ever. And I knew at the time it was one of the best moments ever. And it was a tiny moment. It was, must have been, <laughs> sorry, I'm doing, it was the September 1988. Um, I was about to go to university. <laughs> I don't have noticed, but you, you, you're you quite good at dates. Yeah, I you? just, I'm upset. I don't know why. My wife gets curious. <laughs> but like my sister can say, what year did we go on that holiday to Rhodes or something as kids? And I'll go 1981. And I just know, I just know years. Um, so we did, I'm so undiagnosed, Mike. I've got something. <laughs> I think it's ADHD, I've been told, but I haven't, uh, I haven't properly done the test. Anyway, 
I was 18. I just had a year off because like people that go through private schools, they push you a year ahead. So I was, you know, took my levels too early. And I went and travelled. I travelled to quite nice, safe countries. But at 18, I was, you know, I was in youth hostels travelling around America and Australia and Hong Kong and Indonesia and Fiji and Canada. And I did this and I I'd saved, I worked in a warehouse and, I, and, I, and then I did this trip. And then I came back and worked at Chessington World of Adventures, <laughs> where I was working, I was operating rides. It was much less impressive than it is now, I think, Chessington World of Adventures, but it was a great mm. job for young people because it was just, you know, you're dressing up in silly costumes and you're, you're doing rides. And I was working this one ride. It was after the kids went back to school. So it was like mid-September. So it was easy. It was, a, it was a theme park with kids back at school. So it was a dream to work in <laughs> because it was very empty. And it was a ride that was just in the very little kids part. And it was just, um, it was cars on a track, just going around a track very slowly. And it only needed one person <laughs> to operate it. Just one person switched on the thing, the thing moves, switch it off, and that's it. The job was, and I, I'm lazy. It was one hour on, one hour off. It was just a dream. So we were literally, you're just waiting for something. Yeah, do do my hour. And I, as a kid, I don't like it now, but I loved it when I was younger. I loved daydreaming. I loved going, oh, my life. And I just remember sitting there going, it's a beautiful day. I'm in this half empty theme park with this easy job. And in two weeks, I go to university. And I just, I'm so excited. I'm just so excited by life, by what's going to happen, by the future, by everything. And I just sat there just deliriously happy. And I wasn't, you know, some people get nervous going to university, but I'd just been travelling the world and I was very self-sufficient. And there's something about 18 as well. Oh, actually, no, sorry, I I would have been probably just 19. It was maybe my 19th Mm. birthday. And you also have that thing at that age where you really do think you've sort of sorted it. You think you know, I mean, you're stupend, incredibly idiotic, but you don't know it. (laughs) And it was just that thing of going, I think I've got life sorted. And it was just a wonderful moment. And my poor youngest daughter, who is just turned 19, she's had her whole 18th year in and out of lockdown. And she's mm. she's done her A-levels and she she finished her A-levels sort of mainly online, um, did brilliantly. And is, you know, she's off to uni next year. She Well, it, this in September, but she's done a year as foundation in art. And so she's been sort of mainly online with that. She's meant to be in, you know, was, was going to be going to Camberwell and back and making loads uh, of friends in South London. And, of course. I mean, wonderful. Yeah. And all that life was sort of, is sort of been denied to her, that 18th year of, you know. Actually, I was six years a student. I went to university, then I went to Central Drama School. I know, just... And then left and couldn't get an acting job. I mean, it's just <laughs> my level of disappointment. Money well spent. Yeah, exactly. Um, <laughs> But yeah, we used to get university used to be free and you just go, you know, yeah. you just free for everybody. And it was just, it was fantastic. But yeah, they're so, they're so accepting, I think, the younger generation, that life is quite tough, that they're not getting such a raw deal. I think I knew it was pretty great. You know, I knew that I was yeah. about to enter this great period of life and it was brilliant. I made great friends at university and, and uh, had a wonderful time and came out with an okay degree um (laughs) i took a year off between taking a levels and Mm. going to college so i again Mm. i know that feeling of feeling well like i'm well ready for this and also i'm way ahead of you lot i'm an adult you've just finished school yes i'm gonna storm this it's gonna be brilliant you'll love me (laughs) i remember walking for my interview for university i walked through the town and i thought this is the place for me Mm. yep 
And I walked in, and I just was so confident, so certain of myself. I was quite shy. I, I went to university, I did politics, and I was hoping to be a journalist. Mm-hmm. Not because I was a great writer or anything, because I loved the idea of like being holed up in an embassy, drinking the swimming pool water and trying to survive. And being, <laughs> I think I'd seen that film Under Fire as well. It was all about Nicaragua and journalists and being tough. And I thought, you've not thought this through. I didn't even want to write for the university magazine or anything. You know, I had no... It, I was would have been a terrible journalist. But I did so many plays that I was so proud. And people went, where were you on graduation? I went, politics graduation. My degree was politics. I went, oh, and everybody thought I did English because everybody did English. It was, you know. Yeah. It is those little moments, isn't it? I remember sitting in a park, just dreaming the next three years of my life, just seeing it all ahead of me. And amazingly, it pretty much turned out better, the same, but better than I'd imagined it. I spend far too much of my life, because I'm quite a neurotic and a worrier and quite, not depressive, but I like to, you know, what's my wife say? Tear the wings off a butterfly. (laughs) I tend to, you know, I arrive on holiday and we go somewhere and I go, no, it's not that, oh, is it that good? I'm just terrible. I've got a terrible attitude. And I tend to do that to my life of going, oh, I haven't done that. I haven't done that. I haven't done that. But that thing of remembering what you dreamt about at 18, Mm -hmm. and I sometimes think, the thing about being 18 as well is you're so easily impressed. <laughs> and my 18-year-old self, you know, I do it sometimes to try and remember. Just remember that, you know, when you're in the wings about to do Royal Variety or Live at the Apollo, your 18-year-old self would have been going, wow! Yeah. And that, and that, it's that to try and remember, yes, you have achieved something. It has, you know, it's not like, oh, I've done that, I've done that. You know, because as soon as I, you achieve something, you tend to go, yeah, but what's next? Yeah, but what's next? You know, which is a terrible attitude. And look at so-and-so. I said to someone the other day going, you know, we look at these people... I don't know, Robert De Niro or something. I mean, he's probably not like this, but if I was like that, I'd have moments as Robert De Niro going, yeah, did I? <laughs> oh, but did I do as many? Oh, but what about Robert Redford? What about, the, what about you know, and naming other, did I have as good a career as Paul Newman? Did I have a good, or, and I go, oh my God, you would destroy it. Or being very rich as well. I always think that, you know, Elton John must go, I don't know if he has, he has an island. Does he have an island? I should imagine. But I know he might go, I don't have the same amount of islands as Richard Branson, or I don't have that. Or, you know what I mean? <laughs> yes, I do. And you think, it is pointless. You can't, unless you are, I suppose, Jeff Bezos of Amazon. Isn't he the richest man in the world? Yeah. I'd go, yeah, but you know what? I've lost sight of the value of money because I've spent too much. It, I've lost, <laughs> that's what I'd be moaning about. Oh. oh, well, your sweet 18-year-old self, or just about to turn 19, I should imagine. Yeah, and I was gorgeous. I was, gorgeous. So, you know, I was so good-looking and I never knew oh, it. Oh, we never do. <laughs> oh, how, that's a lovely picture, though, you sitting there with those cars going slowly by, oh, children hopping lovely. on and off and you going, guess where I'm going to be in three weeks' time. Yeah. Fantastic. <laughs> Fantastic. Okay, we've got two more items to put into the time capsule. Right. Um, my next one sounds like an advert because it's KFC. <laughs> Do you love KFC? <laughs> I love KFC. Oh. I mean, it's not good for you. I don't have it that much anymore at all. But it links me now to a memory and a lovely, lovely thing that my wife did for me on my 50th birthday, which was just before lockdown. So I'm now always going to think of KFC in this way. I, I do adore it. It's always the thing where I go, oh, KFC, it just, there's something about fried chicken. Um, <laughs> I was getting miserable coming towards my 50th birthday and I, and I wasn't having a big party because I went, no, it's not, well, you know. And also it was on a weekend and comedians all work on Saturday night. You cannot, I mean, I've had so, too many parties where no comedians are there. And people go, do you have any friends in the industry? I go, we're all working yes. on Saturday yeah. night. You know, that's usually a time. So I was feeling miserable and I said to my wife, 
I don't want a party. Don't set anything up. I don't, really don't. I just want to do nothing. I just want, <laughs> I want to be at home with Belgian beer and a KFC. Mm. That would be my dream night. And then about, with about two days before my birthday, I went, oh, I think I would quite like a birthday party, but then no one would come. So no, mm. and I said it like that. So anyway, on my birthday, Dawn says, my wife, uh, she says, oh, the girls are going to take you out today. We're going to do, you're going to do this. Th-. And I, d- I didn't twig. Why are they taking me out the house and everything? And my daughter's then, you know, 17 and 18. We had this great day in London. We went and did an escape room and we went and sat in a <laughs> cafe. We just went round London. It was really lovely. Mm. Um, really special day. Actually, it was produced. I should, I shouldn't. I, sh- I shouldn't be doing jokes, but it produces one of my finest jokes at the moment, which um, sounds really cruel, but gets a big laugh because I did say this in the moment. I sat down with my daughters in this cafe at the end of the day, got really emotional and said, I said, do you know what? You two are the best thing that's ever happened to me. That's how crap my life's been. <laughs> and I, was, I was joking and they laughed and we had anyway, we had this, just this perfect day of my girls just being gorgeous and lovely. And, and it was just fantastic. And then Went home and my sister, I knew my sister was coming over for dinner and she picks us up at the station and she went, oh, I'm just driving back. I don't want to walk in. And of course, my wife's organised surprise party and I walk in and all these friends are there. There's about one comic. (laughs) (laughs) No, Bennett Aaron, I will never forget you. Um, Uh, He he took the night off and then told me how much money he was losing by being there. I love Bennett. Um, He went, yeah, I need to have a gig and I pulled it. And I went, Um, but lots of friends, lots, and it was just perfect and wonderful and everybody been told bring belgian beer so all we had was belgian like leffy and hogan and uh, duvel and so it was just belgian beer and then, then they go out and my wife walks in we, I, I remember my daughters going back they all drove off and came back again with they'd gone and ordered like 50 orders of kfc from a local kfc <laughs> and kfc was gonna and they just brought it in and honestly i'm not it just sounds like an advert. I bet you someone will listen to this now and go and get a KFC, and I'm not trying to be an advert for them. <laughs> but everybody was going, oh, it is really good, isn't it? I went, it is good, yes, it's good. <laughs> it was just KFC and Belgian beer. And it's so typical of my wife, because she is so thoughtful. She is so good at just hearing something and acting on it. And, and, and I mean, it's it's quite horrendous, because I'm... I've struggled to be thoughtful. I try so hard to think about other people other than myself. <laughs> um, it's the worst job comedy for, for not being able to do this. So every year it's, I'm so excited about your birthday. I'm so excited about Christmas because she's got me a present that's absolutely right. Brilliant. Whereas so often I've gone, I think this is right. And she goes, it's lovely. I'm going to take that back to the shop and mm-hmm. swap it for something I'd really like. Yes. You know, because I'm just not as good. Or you make the mistake that I do, which is where I say to people, I had this brilliant idea for what I was going to do for your birthday. And and that's an example of me for a moment thinking about other people and then drifting straight back to myself, which is, I had the idea. I mean, I I thought it was, listen to this, it's a great, and they go, that would have been great. I go, yeah, yeah, would have been, wouldn't it? (laughs) Hopeless. But I sometimes worry, and that's maybe a bit too much of a generic point, but I do see most couples I know, women just are, they just are more thoughtful than men. Mm. They just seem to be, and I don't think it's conditioning. I don't think it's women are meant to be, you know, that, that they've grown up in houses where they're meant to be more thoughtful or something. I don't know. I just, I just had wonderful news my wife's had today. She wrote a children's book that's been shortlisted for the Waterstones Children's Book Prize. Oh, fantastic. And uh, that's all come out today. And I just, I have that moment of going, well, uh, I at least encourage that. Because I did say to her for years, you would write an amazing, and she's an artist as well, and a writer. She was a copywriter, but she's also trained as an artist. So she's written and done all the drawings for this book that's on sale. And I did say, 
I think you would do the most amazing kids book. And I really, really encouraged her. And now it's successful. I go, I was right. I did understand something about her. I knew she was going to be brilliant at this. But she's just, you know, doing fantastic in this book. It is lovely, isn't it? My wife did a similar sort of thing for my 40th birthday, which Mm. is that she said we're going out to dinner at the local Hotel du Van. And we went in and the people said, would you like to go through and have a glass of champagne? It's your birthday. I said, okay. Went through, opened these doors and they were all my friends. But I I never guessed. I didn't guess. It's incredibly moving, isn't it? Mm. When you have those moments of, I mean, weirdly, I can't believe I didn't guess for the 50th because for my 40th, my wife also did a surprise thing. But this was done really cleverly. But it, it also shows how little she values money, by the way, because <laughs> we were going for a meal for my 40th. I went, oh, no, she probably shouldn't do anything, but just go out in town. And we'd got a hotel for the night and we were just going to have a night in town. And a friend of mine said, Hal, I've got a corporate, cash corporate gig for you mm-hmm. at this club. It was nice. It was, no, it wasn't great money. It was like, it was, it was, no, it wasn't, it was handy money. It was like 600 quid. Mm-hmm. He went, you just turn up. You do like 20 minutes and then you're on. And that's it, mate. And I went, oh, I'm, it's my birthday. I'm to, he went, yeah, but it's just, and I went, I really need, I do need money. <laughs> so I should go and do this. So, so I said to Dawn, can we do that? Can we quickly go before we go to the restaurant? Can we quickly go and do this gig? And she went, yeah, totally. And I arrive and my friend goes, okay, Dawn, just wait at the bar and we'll go. Literally, it's downstairs in one of the smaller rooms. It's, it's um, by the corner rooms. And then he takes me straight backstage I'm in a backstage bit and he went, look, it's been fine. Someone else has gone on before me, he's told me. And he said, they're nice. They're fine. They're fine. They're fine. And then I only guessed at this moment. I'm backstage. He walks on and the audience, there was chatter and the audience go completely quiet. And he goes, ladies and gentlemen, it's our second act for the thing. You've got a corporate fan. Ladies and gentlemen, it's Hal Crattenden. Uh, but I knew by that time, that's friends. They went too quiet, oh. too fast. And I walked out to, hey! oh. <laughs> But also, no 600 quid. No, <laughs> no more. But I love my wife because she just went, he won't be bothered about money when all his friends have turned up. I was a little bit. That's a brilliant thing to organise, though. Oh, isn't it fantastic? And it's amazing. So she's done that for 40th, 50th. I've got to be ready by my 60th. You've got to guess. <laughs> <laughs> when she says, we're just going to pop to the supermarket. Yeah. You're going to be doing an episode of Supermarket Sweep. Is that- <laughs> You'll be allowed to run around and put anything you like into a trolley. She'll have organised the whole thing. It's going to be marvellous. I know. Oh, God, I've given it away now. Oh, damn. <laughs> But I'm just, um, I'm terrible myself at organising. I mean, I was should have, uh, I, I, I mean, she's not had her 50th yet, but her 40th was really lovely. We did have a massive party. It was great, but it wasn't a surprise party because I'm terrible at keeping, I mean, terrible. <laughs> I had a moment, this is how bad I was as a kid. I remember my mum surprising my dad. I think she was setting up a surprise I don't think it was even a 40th. It was probably 36, 37 or something. It was some surprise birthday party because I must have been really quite small. And my mum went, we've got these people coming over. Mm -hmm. It's a surprise party. Don't tell your dad. But as a kid, I was full of, you always tell the truth. (laughs) To the extent that I went straight to my dad and went, dad, I've got to tell you, there's a surprise party happening. Dad, I've got to tell you. So my dad says to me, Okay, that's fine. I totally understand that you think it's good to tell the truth. Obviously, that's fine. Don't tell your mum, though, that I know. (laughs) Straight back to my mum. Mum, I've told Dad about the surprise party. (laughs) What a lovely, honest child. See, Mr Scammell would have loved that. Exactly. Bless him. Mr Scammell taught me well. Honest, straightforward. (laughs) (laughs) There you are, circles within circles. That's fantastic. So I'm going to take a bucket of KFC for you. Yes. And put it into the time capsule. Fabulous. Right. Right, okay, we've got one item left. 
Right. Um, am I talking too much or too little, by no, the way? <laughs> no, talk as much as you like. I talk far too much. Well, that's why I've spoken to two people. You've worked with Rob, haven't you, Rob Brydon? Yes. He talked for about three hours. He said, am I going on too much, Michael? I said, don't worry, I'm going to cut it down. Yesterday, I spoke to Ahmed. Oh, yes, yes, yes. I just sat back for an hour and a half. Well, off he went. Now, I love those two. I've supported both of them. Mm. I actually supported Rob Brydon in 2009, and he really changed my career, Rob. He's one of the most entertaining people to have dinner with, to go anywhere with. Yeah. He is just a natural, like, raconteur. He's natural. He's not got that thing that loads of comics have, I think, which is they're actually quite control freaks, messed up, kind of, oh, is that funny? Is that? And they're sort of always, they're a bit awkward socially. Rob is the opposite. Rob is just... Let me tell you a story about that. Let me tell you. I remember going, having some friends come to see us in Nottingham because I toured with him for about a year. I love tour support, by the way. It's the best job in comedy. I miss it because you're unknown. You're with the big star. They're disappointed when you come out. You can only go one way. <laughs> and, and if you go badly, I think I got booed on in Huddersfield once because it wasn't Rob. Mm. And he was in hysterics. <laughs> he was in the wings going, ha! <laughs> Um, well, I berated this audience going, I was going to do a lovely set for you, but I'm going to do difficult political material just to annoy you. <laughs> um, and Omid's was, oh, Omid's, Omid's just fantastic as a yeah. Canadian. One of the greats. Yeah. Um, right, so this is now my bad thing, isn't it? Mm -hmm. This is really embarrassing. It's quite a personal sort of thing. Um, but, it's, but it's potentially amusing. <laughs> <laughs> and therefore you can't resist it. Yeah, I've never I've never looked this up properly, but it's just something that's been in my life. First of all, I want to get rid of and never see again. I, I want to get rid of urinals. <laughs> I think urinals are the most hideous creation, the most awful thing that men ever have to go through. And I'll tell you why. It's because and I, it, it, there's a name for this condition. Have you heard of it? Well, shy bladder, pararesis. Oh, uh, yeah, yeah. It's called. Yeah. Pararesis. I looked it up. And I have had shy bladder, and I don't think about it that much, but then I think, it does affect my life quite a lot. I do not like peeing. I can't go. If I'm, if I'm at a urinal and someone else is there, if no one else is there, that's fine. If I'm very drunk, I might be able to. <laughs> but usually I have to pretend that I've got a dodgy stomach virtually every time I'm in a crowded men's toilet. I mean, at Saracens, they must all think I have a condition, because all I do at half-time is I'm outside the cubicles on my phone go, uh, uh, waiting for a cubicle. And if I was a woman, no one would know I had this condition. You know, it, I've looked it up online. It's about one in eight men have it. Really? Where they literally, your bladder shuts down because you cannot pee because you are so self-conscious about the fact of, can I pee or not? And I've, through doing this show, thought, what's that come from? And I've remembered the age it started happening. It happening, and it's not to do with being afraid of size, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> I can get changed in a gym, you know, locker room, fine. Um, when I was about 14, I had the first of my neops. It, I was 14, it was 1983. Uh, and I, I had the first of my neops in rugby. And I'm in hospital, and I've, I've got my leg straight in plaster. And, you know, after an operation, they often won't let you go until you pee, until you, because so your body's back to working normally after yep. the anaesthetic. So I'm, but I've got my leg in plaster and I have, and they've got a bottle beside the bed for me to pee into. And I found that incredibly hard, just incredibly hard to go, can I, be, you know, oh yes, I'll try now and pee. And I obviously maybe couldn't pee for a bit. And then a nurse was coming in and going, oh, well, I was in a room by myself and, she, and she'd, she'd come in then she'd go, oh, I'll, turn the, I'll turn the taps on. And everybody was waiting for me to pee so I could go home. Oh, no. And the pressure 
on being able to pee. And people are still not pee. And the angle's funny. And eventually, I and I peed for, I nearly, God knew the <laughs> bottle was nearly overflowing. Um, but since then, it's just, it's, there are people with it, you know. There are people that can't go pee outside their own house. That's how bad. It's called paroresis. And I bet you there's people listening going, I've got that. Um, because they can't pee if they think someone else can hear them peeing. Uh. Because it's someone waiting. But but I remember, oh, just time, when it was when I really realised I had it, I think I was out, I was 15. I was at a disco and I'd been chatting to the guy doing the disco. He was a bit older than us. And I was going, yeah, play that song. Yeah, play that. Whoa, it's cool. Whoa. I went to the toilets. He was at the urinal. The only space next to him was, was next to him. And I stood there chatting, going, oh, yeah, it's great. I can't, can't pee. I can't. And he was just looking. I could see his eyes going, oh, yeah, whoa, whoa, chatting away. going, the man isn't peeing. Why is he standing at a urinal? Why is this boy? And that's what the fear is. The fear is you are standing at a urinal. Why are you not peeing? Yeah. And so the more I think, the more angry I get. Why have we done this to ourselves? What a strange thing it is. Now you mention it. It's never occurred to me before, but why is it all right for men to stand and see each other pee? Mm. Why? Yeah. It must be Victorian. It must be the idea that women, of course, will want to go in there and and have some privacy. And I suppose, really, they need to almost undress, really, whereas it ought to be easier for men. Yes. But at the same time, it's still a very strange social thing, isn't it, that it's all right for men all to just piss in front of each other <laughs> exactly exactly i just think it's the i don't know i'm I, the more i think about it the more angry i get that society's developed like this i love the fact that we're going towards unisex well, is it unisex toilet mm. what is it called when it's both sexes i'm having one of those senior moments um <laughs> well i suppose it is unisex it's not non-sexual it's a yeah it means that anybody can go into the toilet yeah but they're all cubicles they're all cubicles mm. please let that take off maybe one day we'll look back and go oh your idols that must have been tough that's been tough for those men with paroresis <laughs> <laughs> well i'm sure that all women who like sport would all be delighted if all toilets were turned into those sort of toilets because yes. they queue outside, you know, theatres. You always see the yeah. queue for the women's loo goes right the way through the interval. Yes. You know, they miss the start of the second half at a f- sports match because the queue is enormous, whereas men yeah. will just cram in there and just, uh, well, you don't, obviously. No, no, I do. You know, I mean, I occasionally, if really drunk and there's no one else around, I'll go, but even if there's no one else around, I go, what if someone comes in? Mm. What if someone comes in and, I've, and I can't pee and I haven't started peeing? And as soon as I start peeing, I go, it's okay, I've started peeing. As soon as that happens, someone can come in, anybody can, because I'm peeing now. But it is a weird thing to talk about because literally I do not speak to this about people. So why? <laughs> I, if, I'm hoping this makes the news or something, but more people should speak about it because it is so silly. I told my daughter about it last night, who's 19. I went, I can't really pee in urinal. She went, really? That is quite embarrassing. And I went, I haven't told you that in 19 years. And I feared, I've, I've got two daughters, I feared, I think, having a son going, I'm going to have to get therapy to show him how to pee in a urinal because one day, he, how, how can he do it? He goes, He'd get kidnapped because I'd go, you pee in the urinal, son, I'll be in the cubicle. <laughs> you know, it would have been dangerous. But that bothered me. And I, I just, oh, it's just, oh. Well, we don't often make the news, but uh, we do quite often make the Times Diary. So I look forward to reading the article. I know, I I do feel like it's it's like a coming out thing for me, this. There's loads of people I know who go, I never knew that about Hal. Unless they've been with me going to the toilets and I've gone, I'll be going in the cubicle because I have a fear of being in front of other men. <laughs> but you are definitely going to find people who will come up to you and say, I have that. Yeah. Very rarely is it spoken about. And it's it's such a silly thing. But it is quite, it's a worry at big 
event. It's a worry at big rugby games and stuff, particularly because the men's toilets are a disgrace in the cubicles. <laughs> yes. It's horrific to have to go in there and face what's in there. Um, but not all. I mean, Saracen's actually very, very nice. But over, you know, it, there are some places where the men's toilets are just horrific. Um, but the thing is, it shouldn't be embarrassing. It shouldn't be embarrassing for you to say this. It is embarrassing because we don't talk about these things. Yeah. But actually, we all do it. We all go into those places with complete strangers, stand right next to them, open our flies, and off we go. Yeah. And you don't. And clearly, you know, one in eight men yes. don't and it's it's a psychological shutdown apparently your body goes oh mm-hmm. it's almost like i'm under threat i can't and so you can't it's quite disgusting to be talking about it isn't it it's, i should have done this at the beginning i should still do my bad thing at the beginning mike but uh but yes i hope that i'm helping people very you can imagine this how crumden started that charity <laughs> but 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 actually it, what it is is from looking at online it's the least worst of what is a scale because there are these people that that literally, I mean, massive psychological problems of they find it really hard to pee. Wow. You know, they can't be out. They can't go out for very long because they can't pee in a public toilet. No. Because for them, it's the sound or something. Even, you know, the women get it as well. The, the, it's the sound that someone might hear them peeing or expecting them to pee. or You know, for me, it's never like the sound of anything like that. For me, it is, it is that moment where a man stands next to you <laughs> and is thinking, why is that man not peeing? Uh-huh. Why do, does he just stand at urinals with his willy hanging out? <laughs> Because he likes it, because he wants to be there, and he can't be. I, I wonder. I wonder if I actually. I mean, you can get CBT for it. So I've, I'll add that to the list of things I need treatment for. Okay. Yes. So. <laughs> With me, the problem is not that that I'm I'm standing at the urinal. Somebody young comes along, pees forcefully and powerfully for about ten <laughs> seconds, and then off they go, and I'm still there, slowly oh. peeing away. As, a, as, <laughs> as an aged, sad old man. So I'm happy to tell you that. You know, that's the truth of my life. I can't get away from it. Yeah. That's the other thing. When I go back to talking about being 18, you do feel a little bit superior to older people. <laughs> I was saying, oh, I didn't know I was beautiful. You know you're better looking than older people. Yeah. Young people, just enjoy it, even though it's a horrible time for you. <laughs> even though there's been lockdown and you've ruined your lives for us, it is better. The one good thing that can be said for them is almost certainly by the time they get to our age, there will be unisex toilets all over the place and they can just go in and they can sit down and pee. What a joy that is. It's much better to sit down and pee. A relaxed wee, I think people call it. Which, particularly in our downstairs toilet where my rugby programmes are, <laughs> happens quite a lot. Because I go, oh, I'll have a little look at 1984. <laughs> 1984, England, Scotland. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Hal. Oh, Hal, it's been absolutely lovely talking to you. Thank you so much for doing this. It's lovely to meet you, I have to say. Well, lovely to meet you too, Mike. And I have, I know I will listen to this and go, shouldn't have said that. I should have. <laughs> oh, no. Everybody knows about my urinal sphere. Though I really do hope that Mr. Scammell's relatives, I hope they, I'd love somebody to know what a lovely man this teacher was. No, there can't be many Scammells. No. I hope so too. Wouldn't that be lovely? Yeah. Brilliant. Brilliant. You have been listening to My Time Capsule with me, Mike Fenton-Stevens, and my guest, Hal Cruttenden. 
For anyone interested in seeing him live, and why wouldn't you be, Howe will be touring the country in 2021 and 2022, so book your tickets now. All details can be found on his website at howlcruttenden.com, a website which he pretty much owned from birth. I mean, thank goodness his mum and dad weren't Mr and Mrs Smith. Please subscribe to this podcast, rate it, and maybe even leave a review if you get a chance on the podcast provider you're listening to. Or if you're really keen, then go to Apple Podcasts, where you can do all those things. Obviously, typical bloody apple. Perfect to the core. Yes, a little apple joke there for you. Never mind, move on. You can follow us on Twitter, Instagram or Facebook to find out all sorts of things about this podcast. And we have 130-odd episodes to listen to if this is your first listen. I mean, not odd episodes, obviously. Well, some of them are a bit odd, but I mean 130 plus. And there are new episodes available every week, so you never run out. Hey, yeah, it's like those nightmare spiral staircases that build themselves quicker than you can climb them. (laughs) Don't you have that dream? Oh, just me then. Okay, you can download or stream the theme tune of My Time Capsule on Spotify. It was written by Pass the Peas Music, and this was a cast-off production for Acast, produced by John Fenton Stevens. There are more episodes soon, and for those of you who've got used to me saying something ridiculous at the end of this podcast, I'm sorry, but I just don't feel like it. In fact, I feel all poetic. So, for once, we're going to raise the tone. Here is some poetry. There was a brave man from Devizes Whose ears were of different sizes The one that was small was of no use at all But the other won several prizes There you are I like to raise the tone every now and again Don't you love an extra $100 in your pocket? Have a TurboTax expert file your taxes for you by March 31st to get $100 back instantly. Because no matter what moves you made last year, TurboTax makes them count. That means getting $100 back and 100% accurate taxes... Only from Intuit TurboTax. Must file by 331. Credit only applicable to federal filing fees with TurboTax full service. Offer can be modified or terminated at any time. 